0: From your favorite podcatchers and our YouTube channel featuring scenic videos, this is Kaiju Vision Radio, Episode 5, Godzilla Raids Again. Hello, G-Fans and Kaiju lovers, and welcome to Kaiju Vision Radio, a podcast about the appreciation of giant monster movies and discovering their historical and cultural value. I'm Nathan Marchand. And I'm Brian Scherchel. And in today's episode, we will be discussing the first sequel to the original Gojira, which is officially titled by Toho as Godzilla Raids Again, released in 1955.
1: Our related topic for this episode is the Japanese self-defense forces.
0: First, let's do our quick description of this particular film. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio.
1: Godzilla is a force of nature, only this is a different member of the same species. He is attracted to and angered by bright lights that remind him of the hydrogen bomb that mutated him. Angerus is the first new kaiju to appear in the franchise, also likely awakened by nuclear testing. Whenever he interacts with Godzilla, they fight for dominance like a pair of rival animals. Tsukioka and Kobayashi are scout pilots working for a cannery, and Tedemi is Tsukioka's fiance. Their motivation is to live and work peacefully. They're the most average set of human characters of any Godzilla movie in the series, which makes them unique. The kaiju plotline drives the human plotline forward as the two plot lines intersect throughout the film. Mostly the humans are trying to avoid Godzilla, but he still impacts their lives, even though they move across the country. Initially, the military uses flares to deter Godzilla from land, but a conflagration created in an industrial complex by escaped prisoners leads him back ashore. Angerus fights Godzilla but is defeated. When Godzilla shows up on an icy, mountainous island, the air self-defense force attack is ineffectual. The problem is solved when Kobayashi's plane crashes into the mountains, causing a minor avalanche which inspires Tsukioka and the military to fire missiles at the mountain causing avalanches that bury Godzilla in ice. This story is straightforward and logical within its own parameters. The characters are easy to relate to. The special effects in the film are not quite as good as the original film, though the monster battle in Osaka does look good. Overall, the effects lack polish. The Godzilla suit was slimmed down to make the physically demanding fights easier on the actor inside. The film doesn't have the same dark tone present in the original film, though a few scenes do have some gravitas. As for fantasy versus reality, the film tries to present extraordinary events in a realistic fashion, like the first film, only with a second kaiju. The film is not very experimental, nor does it take very many risks. The movie represents an expansion of style from the original Gojira because it starts the sequels, because it's not such a dark film, and due to the kaiju battle, which becomes a regular occurrence in many Godzilla films. This is a quickie cash-grab sequel, meant to capture a large audience and to earn some extra money while Gojira was still fresh in the popular culture. Although this might not be among the most popular movies among the fandom, the film was moderately successful in Japan, selling 8,340,000 tickets. While this isn't an epic film, and it isn't meant to be, the American version is not good at all. The editors added a prologue consisting of narrated footage from atomic bomb testing, stock footage from low-budget educational films replaced scenes from the original Gojira, the dubbed dialogue, especially for Kobayashi, is stupidly comical. Most of the subplot about Kobayashi looking for a wife via a matchmaker is removed, except for one scene and the photograph he has of a woman, and most of Mosaro Sato's score is removed in favor of stock music. The film depicts the Japanese working class, giving the audience a look into the lives of more average people affected by the kaiju. We see a more modern, western-style courtship between Tsukioka and Hindemi, showing the continued change happening in post-war Japanese society. This relationship is contrasted with Kobayashi's use of a matchmaker to find a wife. While subtler here than in Gojira, the anti-nuclear theme is once again present, especially with the appearance of a second Godzilla, making good on Dr. Yamane's admonition that another such creature would appear if atomic bombs continued to be tested there's also a looming sense of powerlessness against the threat of monsters unleashed by the energy of nuclear weapons. This concludes part one of the podcast. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. Part two of the podcast will be our opinion and discussion of the film in question. In this case, I would say it's okay. Yeah, I think it's going to turn out that I like this a little bit more than you like it. And I've seen it. Every time I see it, I think I like it just a tiny little bit more.
0: Well, this was one of the last Godzilla films. I think it actually might have been the last Godzilla film that I I saw for the first time. It was released on VHS only once, and that went out of print, and it was difficult to find. And then by the time I actually did see it, it was the terrible dubbed version. Then when it was finally released on DVD about 10 years ago, I was excited to actually see the original Japanese version. I had wanted to see it because I'm a fan and I'm a bit of a completist. And I thought, okay, this is noteworthy for at least a couple of reasons. So I want to make sure I see it. And then when I saw it, I just thought, yeah,
1: yeah, it's okay. It's not a terrible movie. I saw it really late in my first viewing list for the series too. And I think that this movie gets a little bit too much criticism Again, it's the fallacy of wanting to see the same thing over and over again and trying to measure up this second one, which is a pretty small movie, and trying to measure it up to the original Gojira, which, if you start doing that with every sequel, then you're going to be disappointed a lot because the first one is one of the absolute greatest. And so I guess if you don't set yourself up for disappointment by thinking the next movie is going to outdo the original every time, then I think you'll be okay as far as as long as you don't judge it too much. This movie is much like Son of Kong in that it's a
0: sequel to a seminal film. It was put together relatively quickly inside of six months to a year in order to cash in while the first movie was still fresh in people's minds. So, you know, it does lack polish, you know, compared to the original. But again, you know, you can't really catch lightning in a bottle
1: again, you know, with these sorts of movies. One thing I do like about it is that it's our first monster on monster fight. And this is really exciting. Oh yeah, the, this, the fight in this is
0: brutal, it's dirty, it's bloody. I mean, it's unlike anything else that we would see in the Showa series, really until the 70s.
1: Yeah, Anguirus is the second monster introduced in the Gojira series, and every time that they're near each other, they end up fighting. And the fighting is animalistic and natural. It's not like it's a wrestling match between two guys in suits. It comes off as a genuine battle between two creatures, and there, there aren't any human motions or mannerisms and so it feels really real this time and there isn't a bunch of gadgetry in this movie either it's just plain fighting i think one major thing with this movie is how this is really i think for people who don't like the whole sumo wrestling stances and personality that that the kaiju battles have later on i think this is your movie i mean this is a really good early film that does not um they act a lot more natural when they're fighting instead of uh the stances and the the posturing that ends up later on and so i actually kind of like this for that reason
0: yeah in fact it ends in a fairly brutal fashion godzilla bites Angerus on the neck until he bleeds out quite a bit and then lights the body on fire I think we can safely say Anguirus is dead at the end of this movie. <laughs> Except he didn't stay dead forever and came back in subsequent films where he became a fan favorite.
1: Yeah, and I think people don't notice the blood as much, I think, because it's black and white blood. And so we don't get that visceral red reaction when we see the blood as opposed to in these, in the 70s movies. Okay, so what's with the the matchmaking that is happening in this movie because when I every time I rewatch this I'm like, okay, this has got to mean something.
0: Well, it's actually from what we can tell a depiction of a practice called miai, which involved eligible young people uh looking for marriage who go through a matchmaking process.
1: And it goes back to the 16th century uh during the times of the samurai, and so this is a uh, is a very traditional thing going pretty far back there are only there are, i guess there aren't very many people in japan now who use this method to to attain marriage but it is uh still used i mean less less than 10 percent, but it's uh it is still a method
0: and i have to say just as a writer i'm grateful that they didn't go the love triangle route because that had already been done and we didn't really need to see that get recycled on the dvd commentary for this movie it was argued that Godzilla Raids Again might actually have been what we would have gotten in Gojira if not for the involvement of people like director Ashiro Honda, who intended to make something that was profound and philosophical and important. This one is a bit more like Beast from 20,000 Fathoms.
1: You know, it's more of a giant monster on the loose sort of romp. There is a similarity between this and the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. Gojira is seen at the top of a cliff, and there are two guys, and one's helping assist the other, and that that's exactly how the first opening of *Beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms* involves. The first time you see the creature, it's up on top of a cliff. Only this time, Gojira is with another monster fighting. B movies in Japan are different than B movies in the U.S. too, and like takashi shimura he's in this one just like the original Gojira movie and he's the greatest actor in japan remember and so these were contract actors and there wasn't that kind of perceived damage to actors who were in average films instead of the movie bringing a prestigious actor down the prestigious actor brought the movie up
0: yeah and in fact it's what's interesting is dr yamane is the only character to carry over from one film to another in the Showa series. And I think it's a it's a nice little touchstone to have in there. It's a familiar face and a familiar character for the audience to latch onto.
1: The movie depicts people who are pretty average, and I think that's not a bad thing. I, I can survive without scientists and military people holding the primary roles. It's a good attempt to depict the lives of average citizens whose lives are negatively affected by Gojira.
0: It's something that I wish we had seen more often in these movies. I mean, these films are already replete with military types and scientists and reporters. It's a nice change to see just regular, by our standards, blue-collar sort of workers being affected by what's going on.
1: I think the effect on average people doesn't affect us as much because it's not a city in our country that's destroyed in this movie. And it's not people in our country who are having their jobs destroyed by virtually unstoppable forces like Kaiju. The human parts of the movie have a little bit of a soap opera feel to them sometimes, and they don't do much for me, but this wasn't meant to be as huge of a movie in that respect, of course. The movie also, in a little way, rehabilitates kamikaze pilots, you know, taking a little bit of that shame away. Not a whole lot, not like it's a big focus, but...
0: That's something I hadn't really thought of before because that is more or less what happens to Kobayashi at the end of this movie. He makes a bit of a suicide run at the end and it's becomes the key to how they figure out how to defeat Godzilla in the end. While this movie certainly doesn't have the gravity of Gojira, there are a couple of points where I do feel that the film was attempting to reach that sort of level including what is honestly my favorite scene in the entire movie which features Hidemi She's sitting in a house, it's dark, and she's looking through a window, and through that window she sees Osaka in the distance, and it's on fire. And she just has this look on her face. I mean, the whole scene is communicated entirely through that actress's expressions. There's no music, there's no sound effects, there's no dialogue, and she just has this look on her face that says, the man I love is over there right now in that city, and I don't know if he's alive. She knows that there are kaiju on the loose and they are fighting. The military is attacking the kaiju and there's all sorts of chaos breaking out over there. It's, it's a haunting moment, really. I mean, it, it almost sticks out like a sore thumb compared to the rest of the
1: film. Another scene that's like that, though, where there's a little bit of gravity is when the city goes on blackout and all of those lights go off. And so I'm, that has got to be like a war reference.
0: Yeah, I was thinking that as well while I was watching that because I mean I don't know if that was a common practice in Japan. The citywide blackouts, okay, it was, but it was certainly a common practice by both Britain and the United States in order to curtail bombing runs. But on the other hand, a major difference with this movie is its attitude toward the destruction. There are just some very effective dis- you know, depictions of destruction in this, the aftermath much like in Gojira, but then the characters' reactions to it are very different, and even the film's handling of it is different. What you see in this one is more just property damage. You don't see people suffering, really. And then when you see the characters, they're standing in the office of what was once their workplace, and they're making jokes. You know, I mean, you can interpret that as them using humor as a coping mechanism, but it just seems so weird when before it was... People crying and mourning about people who had died in the and you know, and the fact that they just saw their, the city they love be destroyed. And then, you know, they start talking about what they're gonna be doing after all of this.
1: Just those normal mundane things that they had going on. It's very strange. And you you just made light of what I think is a, a continuum in Godzilla movies where on one end you have depiction of the direct victims of the destruction in these movies and on the other end you have none of it and then in that in the replacement you just get buildings being destroyed and you don't get the hospital scene and there yeah there are a couple movies in the series later that do bring that back but for a long while here in these movies now we're going to be seeing precipitately less Human victims depicted in a suffering, you know, way.
0: It's sanitized
1: like violence, is I guess what you would call it. The less serious movies get less of the depiction, and during the show series, it kind of goes down to zero, almost a number of times. And we're just seeing buildings getting destroyed, and so there's there's that continuum. But it's like if you want things to be more serious, and you want to strike the tone that you want then you have the victims back. I think this is pretty great that this is the last black and white film in the Godzilla series that we're covering. Our next film is going to be Rodan, or Radon, will be in color. And then a lot of films after that will be in scope, as well as on top of being in color. But there is one little
0: elephant in the room that I do think needs to be addressed. We've talked before about how, you know, there are some strengths to dubbing and all of that. But my gosh, the American version of this movie is awful. It's absolutely awful. I mean, yes, it's not a great movie, but the the dubbing, the re-editing and everything in this just totally undermines everything in this movie. It shifts the tone and and changes the characters it just it, it just it ruins everything to the point where it's almost too unbearable to watch it's that obnoxious i mean personally i would not really want to rewatch this uh, that version unless i was going to riff it that's how awful it is the dialogue uh, the dubbed dialogue is terrible the only thing that is noteworthy about the dubbed dialogue is that it features a young a pre-Star Trek George Takei, which I'll give him credit. At least they had a Japanese actor doing the dubbing. But then he he dubs Sukioka, but then Kobayashi is dubbed by the guy who voices Yogi Bear, which is really strange. There were points where I just kept waiting for him to walk up to Godzilla and say, "Hey, Godzilla, I need a picnic basket."
1: Their aim was to alter the movie to the point where it wasn't even a Godzilla movie anymore. And instead, what was it? Gigantus the Fire Monster. Yeah, Gigantus
0: the Fire Monster. And Gigantus is one of the stupidest
1: B-movie 50s sounding monster names I've ever heard. And then we also have the extreme, like all that extreme editing, the narration, the dubbing. And so there's no distinction between Gojira and Angerus either because the roaring was dubbed. Yeah, even the roaring is dubbed. That is what it's so stupid. I mean, there was an erroneous
0: story that got spread for a while that this was done the way it was because they were worried about
1: copyright issues, but I think that's since been disproven. Uh, then there's the insertion of the bad music, and then the nonsense with banana oil. Oh, banana it's just oil! Careless. <laughs> They changed a lot of things for seemingly no reason in this movie. You know, they inserted parts of old World War II reels and stereotypical footage of Japan. I, I don't know, like it made, it made it look like Japan was completely undeveloped.
0: Yeah, and but for me, besides the banana oil comment, which even George Takei said at that point was an archaic phrase, it was more of a World War II thing. So I think he, but still to this day. George Takei gets asked about that particular thing, so it's it's really stuck out to him and to other people. But for me, I think one of the most grievous things that happened in this was that the insertion of that bizarre educational film, I don't even know what the heck that was. Originally, Padding. Yeah, originally it was where they were actually showing scenes of Godzilla's attack during the original Gojira. And then instead, they put in this, and it's bizarre. And I think the best description I I heard of it was the guy on the DVD commentary called it a film about
1: unintelligent design, which just made me laugh when I heard it. I think it was the original version that I watched first, and I liked it. But then I saw this, and I thought, oh, I'm glad I didn't see the other one first.
0: Yeah, you're lucky, because I ended up seeing the dub version first, and I just thought, what is this?
1: <laughs> that concludes Part 2 of the podcast.
0: You're listening to Kaiju Visionary.
1: In Part 3 of the podcast, we choose a related topic, and that is something that was either going on at the time the film was released, or something that the film references directly. And this time around, we chose the Japanese Self-Defense Force, or the JSDF. It was partially because we see a lot of the SDF in the Godzilla movies, for sure.
0: Yeah, it's a a huge trope in these sorts of movies, but it's very much popularized in in the Japanese films. It's almost impossible to watch a Godzilla movie that doesn't have a military presence in it. And so first we can do the information just about the SDF in general. I will tell you right now, the the more we dove into this, the more interesting the Japanese military became.
1: It's it's a very unique story in a lot of ways. But first, the, the SDF was founded in 1954. It was the same year that the first Gojira film was released. And and about
0: four months before the film was released, actually.
1: Yeah. It's an extension of the Japanese police force and not as an official military, which was a way to go around the Constitution though they are heavily controlled by the Ministry of Defense. One reason why the SDF was found to be necessary was during the Korean War, U.S. forces were heavily engaged there, which left Japan mostly defenseless.
0: The other interesting thing is that even though they were originally started as a national police force, they were sporting military-grade armaments. So in a lot of ways they are a, the the jsdf was a standing army in all but name
1: well it was the posture of the military that changed that was different from normal militaries the sdf is a very defense oriented military especially at the start so you don't get much capability to to do things like counterattacks or or an actual kind of offensive defense this is like a defensive def- defense Strategy. The Prime Minister is actually the commander in chief of the JSDF, and the branches include the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force. Uh, The ground forces, the maritime forces, and
0: uh, the Air Forces, I believe, is what they're called? Yeah. Okay.
1: Another way this connects to the movies is that the SDF is in charge of internal security, and that's why they are the ones that are fighting the Kaiju. And meanwhile, the U.S. forces that are in Japan, those are meant to protect Japan from external threats. And so that's why in almost none of these movies do you see the United States military taking action against kaiju. That changes a lot, lot later in the series, but for an extremely long time during the series, there's no there is no depiction of the American military in just about anything. In, later on in one of the movies, there's... In the American version, there's... Uh, Mothra versus Godzilla. Yeah. Right. And so we end up with that, but the Japanese version doesn't have that at all.
0: I know. That's one of the things that's really interesting, but it's just one scene, and it is a, a nice special effects scene, but all it really is is the U.S. Navy firing missiles at Godzilla and failing to stop him. I mean, they slow him down, but that's about all they do. But other than that, you don't really see an American military presence in any of these movies.
1: Also, I think the reason why the U.S. military doesn't keep showing up in Godzilla movies is because I think it's partially a, a thing about national pride and you know, about Japan defending itself rather than having to rely on somebody else to do it all the time. I mean, th- these movies would have a very different feel if it was the United States military defending them all the time. It would kind of be embarrassing from a, like a Japanese standpoint to have to keep asking for military help from somebody else. Yeah, so yeah, I would I, I a, would agree with you there. There's a there's certain national pride component to this. Isn't it just a way to rebuild the military without calling it that? Or is there something else going on here? Just recreating the military, that wasn't the main goal here. I mean, self-defense was more a priority because you can't have a nation like Japan during the Cold War completely defenseless. I mean, realistically, that is a very hard thing to do. I mean, you're just like painting a target on the back of your on your back if you just not if you just refuse to have a military just ideologically just because militarism at the time was not very popular
0: and i think japan also recognized that the the americans were not going to be there forever nor did i nor do i think did they as a whole want the americans to stay there so they knew that they were going to have to take care of themselves especially when they have some unfriendly neighbors (laughs)
1: It was mainly left-wing parties in Japan that that supported the view that it, that having a military was unconstitutional and and that the SDF was a violation of the constitution. Even then, it was a minority opinion, and now it's it's still a minority opinion. Was that was that a a controversy that existed
0: since the inception of the SDF? Yeah. Ah. Okay, because I I knew that that you know that's been a long time controversy. I didn't know if it went all the way back to the
1: the beginning. I think it's pretty hard to to advocate that your country be entirely defenseless. I mean, it's just, it it seems unrealistic. Is rebuilding the Japanese military and wanting them to be called a military, which is, uh, that's a little bit of the movement that we're getting now in Japan. Is that a return to a militarism like that existed in World War II?
0: I would say no. Uh, The more I've read about what's going on, this surgence or resurgence, if you will, of nationalism that's particularly popular with Japanese young people is not the same as the pre-war imperialism. For the most part, these are people who are recognizing the situation that they find themselves in and have decided that Japan needs to strengthen itself, and if that may—and that's going to mean— revising their constitution, in particular, revising Article 9, to allow themselves to build a larger military, not necessarily so they can go conquer their neighbors, but so that they will be better able to go on the offensive if they are attacked.
1: Yeah, and that leads us to what the challenges are today, because the the, the role of the SDF and the importance of the SDF have really changed over the time that the Godzilla series takes place. And you can see that attitude change
0: over the course of the films. You know, you look at the Showa era, which went from the 50s until the 70s, and it has a stronger pacifist streak in it. But then after the Showa series ended in the 70s, the support amongst the Japanese people began to increase for the SDF. And then when you get to the Heisei movies, you start to see... a a, you know a less of a pacifist streak in it but you certainly once you get to the millennial movies start to see a more pro-military not pro-militarism those are two different things but a a more pro-military
1: stance yeah pro-national defense And, and what you mean by a pacifist depiction of the military is that there isn't that there isn't like a nationalistic component to it no like there there isn't a there isn't so much of an attachment uh, between the people and, and the military as far as just generalized faith in the military.
0: Yeah, the, the presence of the military in the films was more just a... It, it, it was something that they knew, you know, if this was to occur in real life, there would have to be a military response. It was more of a depiction of realism out of necessity than anything else.
1: First, we have a continuum where we have decreasing pacifism over time in post-war Japan, uh, especially after the Cold War ends and so that's that's one big sort of macro trend that we're looking at as we go through the Godzilla era another continuum would be increasing faith in and patriotic feeling in the military And, and and an increase generally of the attachment that the Japanese have to the military they feel and they support it more over time The third continuum is an increase in Japanese support for the U.S.-Japan alliance, like from 1960, and nowadays the support for the alliance militarily between the U.S. and Japan is very high, and among young people it's quite high too. Right, so let's get to that environment now, like how the environment has changed security-wise in East Asia in regards to Japan and the threats that they face. Well, first, obviously, especially right now, a big one is North Korea. North Korea threatens everybody. Yeah, and their (laughs) nuclear program and their ability to hit Japan, specifically U.S. military bases, and either a non-nuclear or a nuclear even attack. This is a very big generator of problems in East Asia, and the regime seems to be more out of control than it has ever been. And there's a great amount of worry in Japan about this because North Korea is so close to them. Besides North Korea, probably the biggest problem in the in the region is the rise of China, and its increasingly larger and very much modernized military. Also, and there are a number of Chinese military bases that have been built on coral reefs in the South China Sea, and that is obviously for the projection of uh, Chinese military power And it appears that the rise of China is really, their military is so large that they really eclipse Japan's military power at this point in time. And so there's a very uneven balance between Japanese military power and Chinese military power. So it is creating more instability in the region. There are also a number of island disputes that Japan has between Russia, South Korea, and China, particularly China in the Senkaku Islands. And so there's a lot of risk right now in East Asia. And a lot of these problems weren't around at the time that the SDF was created. Given the security environment that Japan finds itself in now, it's very hard to advocate that that everything should just stay the same.
0: The thing of it is, Article 9 at least in my understanding, was originally created in order to keep Japan from becoming a militant empire like it was before the war and during the war. I don't think we have to worry about that anymore. There's been enough time since the war that the culture is not the same. And even though there is this resurgence of nationalism, their goal is not to go back to the empire. So that's why I do think this needs to be revised. It needs
1: to be changed because the environment isn't the same anymore. This is the this is the new trend that we find ourselves in and, and and if I was in Japan and I had to live in that area of the world, I would I would feel pretty threatened. Like there's a lot of instability in the region when it's almost never good when you have a mili- when you have two countries that are such huge economic powers And one has a giant modernized military, and the other country has a very small military. I mean, there are currently less than 250,000 personnel in the SDF, and and it's very small compared to the, the military power that China has. Also, Japan is the third largest economy in the world, but they have almost no ability to project military power in any kind of way in order to contribute to stability. And so with that, you also have a big disparity is between Japan's economic power versus Japan's military power.
0: Not only the, the third largest economy in the world, but they're, they also have the eighth largest military budget in the world, which seems impressive to be on the top 10. But considering you're being eclipsed by people like the United States and China, it's very much a distant eighth place. I mean, it's those two countries are in classes all their own compared to everybody else in the top 10.
1: There's also a demand in Japan now that that wasn't as strong before. And that's to have Japan be a normal country. And well, part of a normal country is to have what is to have a normal military. And, And so these, these things all kind of go hand in hand. It's my belief that over the time that we see the Godzilla movies, we are watching Japan become a more normal country. And so as we follow through all of these movies, you get to see this interesting change. But I I think that Japan is going to try to become a normal country within its own context and not like, you know, compared just, you know, apples to apples comparison to any other country in the world. But I think a normal military is almost a prerequisite of having a normal country again. Let's go into the difference in between a defensive defense versus an offensive defense. And so a defensive defense is simply protecting only stuff that's within your borders and not going about any kind of retaliation or attempting to neutralize the, the threat that you're faced with at that time. And so it's a purely defensive posture versus offensive defense, which that does involve doing like a counterattack, counteroffensive response to the military threat that was against you. And so the, the, that's the difference in between those two postures. If it actually ends up becoming a military itself, they would actually be able to, to project offensive power. But currently, it, we're working towards what is an offensive defense instead of a defensive defense in, in earlier times. It's an important distinction to make. Another way to describe this would be An a defensive defense strategy is repelling the enemy while an offensive defensive strategy is including counteroffensives and counterattacks.
0: The timeframes for these are also very different. In a defensive defense, you're anticipating a long conflict, whereas an offensive defense seeks to end the conflict much sooner. So in the long run, you have the potential of saving yourself a lot of time, money, resources, and personnel.
1: Since the 2014 revision of the interpretation of Article 9, now Japan has the ability to assist the United States if the United States gets into a military conflict in the East Asian region. And Japan, until then, was not able to do that. And so now they can... Immediately start assisting the U.S. military if a problem occurs, which it's something that was considered necessary given the given the security environment in the region, and I I would say that that probably makes Japan safer in in the long run, and obviously it works both ways that that the United States military would be able to help Japan if a conflict occurred. And and the strengthening of the U.S.-Japan military alliance is is a big goal of the current government in power, too. Another one is that Japan gets on a more equal footing militarily with the United States as well and and sort of be able to at least try to to meet us a little bit closer. And that way, Japan and the United States together, that balances out China a lot more than if it was just Japan alone.
0: Would you also say that you know this uh, you you touched on it a bit brian but the the alliance is mutually beneficial for both japan and the united states because you know with things like north korea and you know and making the region more volatile we need a staunch ally over there right now
1: like i said in episode 3 about the first godzilla film i touched on the fact that japan ended up becoming the favorite son of the united states in the region and and obviously Japan is our closest ally in the region, and that partially especially during the Cold War, the military bases served the function of increasing the ability of, of the United States to project military power in the region. The recruits for the SDF tend to be from more rural prefectures. I think it's the thing where the people who live in the urban areas they have more access to a lot better jobs for like corporations and stuff, which that obviously is a higher sort of status than than being in the military. It's not all that desirable of a job either, especially with the labor market so tight the way it is in Japan. And so the military just isn't one of those huge goals for, for people who want employment.
0: Although I have heard that recruiters still have to work a little bit to persuade prospective recruits in order to get them to join.
1: Yeah, and they can resign at any time, too. They're also trying very hard to get a larger number of women to join the SDF. And they're doing programs like allowing daycare facilities and things like that so that women have more free time to be able to to join the SDF and make a difference there.
0: They're also allowing them to join a greater... A more diverse array of fields within the SDF as well. When the, the SDF was first formed, they were only allowed to join their uh, to join as nurses, but now they're I think they can join I think about eighty percent of the of the divisions that are within the SDF. They just can't be in direct combat, which is interesting. I think you can see this reflected in the, in the Godzilla films. You start to see a stronger military presence, but also more women. You start to see as part of the military as the films progress as well.
1: They refer to it as improving the work-life balance. So having improvement and establishment of childcare facilities and other things such as the development of gender advisors, and that would include the perspective of eliminating gender disparity in international peace cooperation efforts. One thing that has to be dealt with is that we've run into this term, the gray zone. And we wanted to try to try to define that and, and how that is perceived as far as threat levels in Japan. And a gray zone is the space in between total war and peace, where it would be a smaller than full-scale systematic military attack by a state, but is still a threat to Japanese security. And so this would be like a, a small operation. I possibly, for instance, China invading the Senkaku Islands with military people disguised as not the military. Historically, the, the SDF has changed over the years, but it seems to be a pretty slow process so far.
0: Yeah, the in fact, uh, 2004 was considered a, a major turning point in the history of the, the SDF because they deployed 600 ground troops into Iraq to help with reconstruction efforts, and it was at the behest of the United States. The thing is is that that was a controversial decision. It was it was quite unpopular with certain people in Japan because they thought it was a violation of the constitution, specifically article 9 that Koizumi, who was the prime minister at the time, his administration had to mandate these seemingly ridiculous things for their troops to do in order to make sure that they don't, you know, violate the the constitution. And it just seems like splitting hairs, like the they were not allowed to fire on insurgents unless fired upon first and they were allowed only to help with humanitarian efforts that were going on over there. And it's also the first time since World War II that the Japanese had made a major foreign deployment. So it was a very important moment in the history of the self-defense forces.
1: Another thing that the self-defense forces have done more recently is there is a, a military base that Japan has in the African country of Djibouti. And it's uh, to protect the shipping from the Somali pirates that are in the Indian Ocean. So that is another mission that the SDF has had, which is to to protect Japanese interests abroad. In June of 2009, the Diet finally passed an anti-piracy bill. That allows them to use Japanese naval forces to protect non-Japanese vessels against the Somali pirates, which that's another indication that the Navy is able to reach out more than just protecting Japanese vessels and instead contributing to security over a larger, larger extent. Here's the big question that I have, and that is, is being a Godzilla fan about being a pacifist?
0: Brian, you and I, we both love Ashira Honda. We both love the original Gojira, and we see Gojira as the masterpiece that it is. It's certainly an expression of Japan at that time.
1: To be a Godzilla fan, I, I appreciate the first film very much, but I also appreciate the later films, and i think you have to understand the lesson that these movies are trying to show us because it, especially the later ones because they they track the the changes in japan's feelings about the military overall and i don't think that i don't think that it's swinging back the opposite way back towards imperialism i don't think i don't think that at all i think japan's nationalism has been a lot more nuanced than that i think it's really cool that that you get to see this change over time, but I think I think it's important to embrace that change and to notice when you need to change your mind.
0: And I think that's why these divisions that we're talking about are not really happening in Japan amongst the Japanese Godzilla fans, it's more with, I would say, at least the American fan base. There's where you see the divisions. Because they don't understand what it's like to be in Japan right now. They don't have that same frame of reference. And oftentimes they're filtering it through their own culture, through their own politics, and not seeing it for what it really is.
1: Yeah, and I think we have to have the faith for it, and I think we need to adapt. You know, you, you got to be able to adapt to... When the situation on the ground changes, if you keep looking back and looking back at about how great things were, you, you are ignoring the fact that now the Japanese are more for the U.S.-Japan alliance than in previous decades and that there is a closer connection in between Japan and the United States than ever. And so I don't see that as a return to imperialism at all it's a it's definitely a different kind of of patriotism that Japan has been building over the past couple of decades. Well, I think we've really given a good primer to the audience about the JSDF, where they were and where they're going now. And it's
0: as we mentioned, it's very important to know all of this because the the JSDF has a huge presence in these movies. So, understanding that element is a key element to understanding these films as a whole all right brian i think we can wrap things up in our next episode we'll be taking a minor detour from godzilla to talk about 1956's rodan aka radon if you'd like to get a hold of us and send us some feedback we'd love to hear from you our email address is feedback at kaijuvision.com. you can also follow us on twitter and on facebook
1: our podcast is available on google play itunes stitcher blueberry TuneIn podcast addict our youtube channel and on our website kaijuvision.com thanks to audiophiliac for creating our theme and bumper music www.fiverr.com slash audiophiliac if you like our podcast please support us on patreon i'm nathan martin and i'm the podcast webmaster and i'm brian Churchill, and i edited this podcast sayonara